Welcome to Negotiating Brexit, the Views from the Member States podcast. This is a series for anyone interested in Brexit and the UK's future relations with its European neighbours. We look at viewpoints that are not always well known in the UK. I'm Hussein Kassim, Professor of Politics at the University of East Anglia and a Senior Fellow of the UK and a Changing Europe. And I'm Cleo Davis, Senior Research Associate at the UEA. Today we're looking at Germany and Brexit. We're delighted to welcome our guests, Eva Heidbreder and Nikolai von Ondorza. Eva is Professor for Multilevel Governance in Europe at the Otto von Gericke at the University of Magdeburg. She studied at the University of North London, University of Osnabrück and the Institute for Advanced Studies in Vienna and completed a PhD at the European University Institute. Ava held a junior professorship at the Heinrich Heine um, University in Dusseldorf, where she completed her habilitation. She's held postdoc positions at the Free University and the Hertie School in Berlin. She's an EU specialist and has followed Brexit closely. Nikolai is Deputy Head of the European Research Division at the German Institute for International Security Studies, SWP, in Berlin, where he heads the EU-Europe Research Division. He studied at the University of Bath, the Charles University Prague, and the Humboldt University in Berlin. He organises the British-German Outlook Group, a yearly exchange between the SWP, Chatham House, the Asviga Amt, and the FCO. Nikolai works on Brexit and the future of EU-UK relations. So a first question is, the UK imagines that national capitals have been as preoccupied by Brexit as the UK is. How much attention has Brexit commanded in German political circles and in the German media? When the referendum was held, there was very high attention paid to to the UK and that referendum. And it really took centre stage. But actually, very soon after, already with the elections in 2017, the attention was more on internal politics. So it, it was very prominent, but attention shifted very quickly in the political realm to the question of what will the future of the EU27 be? Where are we heading as European Union? And I would say over the years, over the long years that took place, um, the UK has become more of a really external actor and Germany is observing what is happening there. So from an initial great shock and really a, a situation of how could that happen uh, and what is going on there, over the years it's become um, really, it's like, what, what is the UK doing? Where are they heading? In, in a situation where really very early on, it was already realized that it could take a bad end I would also like add maybe that tension has been much more on uh, the th- political theater in Westminster uh, than the negotiations themselves. So this year, you could say that COVID-19, of course, the US election, the dealings with Turkey, uh, what's happening in Belarus have been much more uh, upfront in German media rather than the very tense uh, Brexit negotiations. Mm-hmm. Whereas in 2019, I would say at the height of the Westminster theater, that was really the one period where I would say that German media covered it almost daily, um, getting through all the different moves Uh, that happened uh, there, whereas now I would wouldn't even want to put Brexit on the top five issues in German media and foreign policy right now. That's a really interesting point. So when the UK referendum took place, I mean, the UK and elsewhere anticipated a domino effect across Europe. Uh, you mentioned, Eva, that Germany was one of the countries where elections took place after that referendum. Uh, was there any evidence that Brexit was an issue in the elections or that it had an, any wider effect on how parties positioned themselves on the EU or spoke about Europe? And has it had any long-term impact on party politics 
for the European discourse um, of leading German politicians. Actually, the effect in Germany um, was um, that after 10 years of felt EU crisis, uh, public opinion shifted positive. So uh, the Brexit referendum led to really uh, a tenure height in, in, in support for the EU. And what you also saw is that you saw this pro-EU movement, Pulse of Europe, entering the streets and putting it into the streets. And uh, in my feeling, maximum 10 days and the, uh, the issue of a domino effect was off the table. But not so much because of Germany, but because of the EU27. Because, uh, and, and I think this is key, key for the whole Brexit process, that even the strongest EU skeptics realized in no time that following the UK, having a referendum of that kind is at your disadvantage. And that was a basic understanding that was established maybe within hours almost. Uh, and really the talk about a domino effect was there for maybe a week. What has been the perception in Germany of the UK and Brexit, uh, that decision of David Cameron's to call an in-out referendum, the new settlement and the subsequent negotiations, the perception in Germany? If you wanted to add a couple of words on that, maybe. I think the first reaction was, this is incredible. This is incredible. By and large, Germans perceive of Brits as being pragmatic and rational. And I think it took quite a while to really get to this incredible situation and, and accept that Brits are, from a German perspective, not acting pragmatically here, that uh, this is incredible. I think that was truly the first reaction and uh, in the wider public and also in, 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 in the, for the political decision makers and, and the administration in particular. So an honest shock. And um, that I think, um, and, and also regret and sadness. And I think there's ever repeated words of we want as close as possible a relationship, we want a friendly relationship, we feel connected to the Brits. I think this is honestly meant, and you see that um, the Prince of Wales was invited to speak in Germany in the Bundestag on 15th November. So it's, it, this connection is, is, is meant seriously, and, and, and Britain is, a, is an important and close partner. Uh, but this, uh, and, that, and, and I think there was, Germans were kind of waiting for the Brits to be, become pragmatic again and act in what, from a German perspective, is perceived their interest. And that never happened. And I think that was followed up, especially in the, in the long-wearing process of negotiations uh, with little movement, with some sense of disillusion, and at some point also being a bit fed up and frustrated and also being fed up and saying, well, when finally do we get a position from the British side, a position we can work with? Uh, and the administration was rather fed up. And you could also find that in public opinion. Um, when the question came up of prolonging uh, deadlines again and again, you saw a shift in public opinion going to, to the direction of, you know, if they want it, so let them go down the cliff edge. I have pretty much the, the same impression. It was basically a development of uh, the the referendum being seen as brinkmanship, uh, as something of playing with fire uh, that that was not necessary, purely done for in, internal political reasons, which I think led to the impression that most Germans expected a pragmatic vote of, of staying within the EU. And uh, this resulted in this big shock in Berlin because we have, from experience, all these pro-European Brits coming over explaining to us uh, why the referendum would uh, result in a Remain vote. Uh, and that led to this huge shock in Berlin. Uh, then this 
period of sadness. We all have connections to the UK, both Eva and I studied in the UK, and that's not no exception. Many personal cultural uh, connections to the UK. I think for Germans, uh, the UK very much still belongs into the heart of Europe. It's part of core cultural Europe, uh, so to speak. And so there's, there was a real heartfelt uh, sadness. Uh, but then also this frustration. And I think the best uh, example for me is this German saying, Reisende soll man nicht aufhalten. Uh, you shouldn't stop travelers, which you will usually say about a football star that doesn't want to play for its club anymore and wants to go somewhere else. Uh, and I think this is a, a saying you hear often uh, nowadays, Reisende soll man nicht aufhalten. If the UK really wants to leave, if it wants this full break, just let them go. The, the, the UK was always seen as a, the critical partner, the critical voice in European integration, but with constructive criticism most of the time. I mean, there was frustration. For instance, let's think about when was it 2011 when Cameron threatened to veto uh, in the negotiations on, on the further reform on the Eurozone. And this was seen as, as entirely uh, sort of uh, deconstructive. And, and overall, the UK was seen as a critical but constructive partner and uh, also a partner that brought some necessary criticism into the EU debate uh, in some areas where Germany itself didn't want to veto. Uh, and the UK was willing to play the role of the bad cop, for instance, in budget negotiations, uh, on trade negotiations, on the future development, on the single market. Uh, so um, I think for Germany, the UK was one of the more important partners uh, in the EU. And it's a partner that has been missing uh, in the last four years when the UK has already been absent in discussions on the future of Europe. That's really interesting because that suggests that um, the Brexit has already had an impact therefore on, on interactions between EU member states which um, is something that we don't necessarily hear very much about. So just moving on to thinking about the negotiations themselves I'm thinking about um, both sets of negotiations and withdrawal agreement and the future relationship. Many observers were really surprised by the unity um, on, the, on the EU side um, especially in, in the negotiations on the future relationship, where it was thought that um, economic self-interest would come to the fore, that it would drive member state positions, and that would be difficult to sustain a, a united front. Why didn't that happen, in your view? I think if we look at the German stance, right from the beginning, the German government realized that for them, the main priority in these negotiations is to preserve the integrity of the single market and the 27, uh, and therefore do everything in, in its power uh, to keep the EU together. And that um, as important as the economic relationship with the United Kingdom is after Brexit, uh, the UK would become an economic competitor to some extent uh, to Germany and the EU, and therefore much more effort were put on, on keeping the 27 together. Um, and there's been also a very conscious choice early on by the German government uh, that negotiations should be purely done through the EU institutions and Michel Barnier uh, rather than bilateral negotiations between Berlin and London or Berlin, Paris um, and London. And I think Chancellor Merkel in particular, she coined early on the, the phrase uh, no negotiation before notification, saying we won't negotiate with the UK before they triggered Article 50, and then everything should be done through this uh, EU-UK negotiations rather than her engaging with Theresa May or now, now Boris Johnson. And I think the signal contributed quite a lot to the EU side very strongly saying we are negotiating this as one and not the different member states and capitals sort of bypassing the EU directly with London. I agree, and I think what one should not underestimate is... Um, that this one mantra 
uh, evolved from the Brexit negotiations for the EU27. And that is the single market is untouchable. And that is not a matter of negotiation or interest or whatever. That's a principle. I think very early on for all EU member states, the understanding came up that if we have somebody participating who doesn't stick to the rules, the single market is dead and we don't want that. And this is solid. This has been solid throughout the negotiations. And it doesn't only hold for governments. If you look at what, what Brits always like to look at, the German automotive industry, the statements immediately after the referendum by um, the heat lead organization the, uh, for the German car industry was the single market is most important to us. We may lose 10,000 of jobs, but uh, doing harm to the single market is much more costly for us. It is not only governments, but there was a wide understanding that preserving the single market is the prime objective and therefore also the strategy to negotiate together. And what comes with it is this other mantra which Germany always repeated is this word of an orderly Brexit. What is meant by an orderly Brexit? It's not only that Germans like order, that is well known, but um, I think there, there was two puzzles. The one is, how do we manage this? How do we do a Brexit? How do we negotiate? We have very rudimentary, really, rules in the, in the treaties. Okay, so we have to stick to those and have to fill those with meaning. How can it work? Well, we do it like an inverse accession negotiation. So we go step by step through every issue. That is the only way that can work because we need to go through all this. And that was meant by an orderly Brexit. I, I take take the points about the orderly withdrawal and the orderly process and the, the single market. I mean, what's, what's sort of perhaps curious for... Um, an observer is then why was the Irish border given so um, such prominence was that an issue for Germany because at some point you know you heard member states thinking well it's are we really going to jeopardize economic prosperity by you know, prioritizing this particular issue I was struck by how soon the Irish border issue came out in Germany I remember in early 2017 even before Theresa May had handed in the article 50 notification when German diplomats and officials talked about their main priorities three top three priorities in these Brexit negotiations it was of course the integrity of the single market it was a sustainable relation economic relationship uh, with the UK but the third was already the Irish border in early 2017 I would say even much before it became a prominent issue uh, in, in London. Um, and it, this is twofold. Um, I think the, the first reason for that is uh, that this was an opportunity to show solidarity within the EU, to show that the EU works for also smaller member states. And Germany has al always made a big important point uh, that its position in the middle of Europe um, necessitates uh, that it also supports the interests of the smaller EU member states. And here really this was an issue for where uh, the EU could show that its solidarity works in negotiations that were so crucial for one of its member states. And the second point actually brings us back to the single market, uh, that the border is an open flank in the single market. And it's been German industries, which have been very supportive of the strict position of the EU Commission, saying, yes, we accept we need an open border in, in Northern Ireland. But that also means that there needs to be a customs border somewhere. There needs to be controlled somewhere. And therefore, we need a solution where uh, we get with what was agreed with a withdrawal agreement uh, controls somewhere either in the Irish Sea or between Northern Ireland and Ireland, what nobody wants, somewhere these controls have to happen or we have an open flank in the single market. And therefore, German industries 
are now also very, very critical of the internal market bill, saying that this should be a precondition, even from German industry's point of view, uh, for getting a free trade agreement with the UK, because if this open border of the single market isn't solved and the border controls don't work, this is also, again, in, to the detriment um, of the single market. What we said about how you observe Brexit. Um, you see also in, in media and in the public debate that you know there's a lot, quite a lot of attention being paid to the Irish border. To where does conflict occur? What does it mean for the Irish border? What does it mean for people who live there? So there is attention that. And there's an additional interesting observation is that uh, Brexit has really led to an increase in German-Irish relations. You you asked previously a little bit about how relationship between Germany and the other member states uh, changed, and I think it's fair to say that for many member states who were closely connected to the UK, Brexit has been a loss. And looking to which member state, big member state, they, sh they should orient it themselves most who had to choose between Paris and Berlin, rather look towards Berlin. Ireland did a lot uh, to increase its relationship uh, with Berlin. We saw visits from the Irish president in Berlin, a lot of exchanges between the Taoiseach and, the, and Chancellor Merkel, um, close connections between the two foreign ministers. Um, and I've heard a German official remark that The two EU, small EU member states that Germany paid the most attention to in the last 10 years were Greece and Ireland. And I think that says quite a lot about um, how this has now become a very important relationship for Germany and a close partner from the smaller EU member states where the interests have been widely communicated to the German leadership. Don't forget the first team that played Germany after the Second World War was Ireland. So they have a place <laughs> in our heart whatever may come. Huh? One of the questions I wanted to ask you um, sort of you know, derives from a sort of characterization that one sees in the UK press. So Germany is the good cop, France is the bad cop. I wondered if you thought there was any truth in, um, in, the, in, in this representation and, and has, it, has it changed over time? I'm thinking of you know, pre and post uh, well, presidential elections in France. I think it's a fair characterization in terms of language, but not in terms of interest. The uh, interests of Germany and, and France in the Brexit negotiations have been very, very closely aligned uh, throughout these last four years, very, very close coordination, very close overlap. And so I don't think there's ever been real big, strong tensions between the two on this issue. And you could even say that looking back at the, the last years, there were a lot of Franco-German disputes on EU matters, but Brexit certainly wasn't one of Them. And I wondered about the perception of the the role of the task force. Um, I mean, it's been it's been explained um, by by some as a as a device to to ensure that um, you know to guarantee and to render transparent a position that will represent all 27 member states rather than the larger uh, member states rather than Berlin and Paris in particular. I, I wondered what the perception of the task force has been in in, in Berlin and um, and the job that Michel Barnier has done. I mean, because you know certainly in the UK the thought has been well, okay, you know, this bureaucratic actor exists, but actually we can always go over the heads of, um, of Michel Barnier and speak directly to, um, to Chancellor Merkel and to, and to Macron, perhaps get a, get, a, get a better deal. I think this was a complete misperception from the British side that you would negotiate through capitals and not through issues. You had to negotiate issues, as the EU usually does, follow the script of an inverse accession negotiation. And I think there would have been quite a lot of scope for disagreement amongst the EU27 had we ever started real trade negotiations. There is, of course, massive room for disagreement amongst the EU27, but not per se general between the capitals. 
And that was established very early on. So I think that the strategic mistake, if, if you wish, from the British side was not to start real in-depth trade negotiations. I think there we would have seen frictions. Also inside Germany, because the different regions are affected very differently. And um, interestingly, interestingly, in Germany, we have also a, a whole system, coordination system between the lender and the Bund that coordinate position to collect basically the information, what, what impact will Brexit have, which costs will it imply for whom. In that sense, um, the, the mandates that were given to Barnier, because Barnier didn't just start to negotiate, he always went on a mandate that was drafted by the European Council, so by the heads of state and government. And on, on the general lines, there was but agreement. There was, there was agreement. Uh, so uh, I don't think any of the capitals would have seen an advantage in taking the lead. Especially Germany. Think about the position of Germany after the disaster with the migration policy and its end in, in the EU. Would it have been an advantage of Germany going ahead and saying, we want to be the leader in these Brexit negotiations? I don't see a strategic advantage in that. There was also the acknowledgement in Berlin that uh, if if Germany and France would go ahead and negotiate Brexit, there would be huge suspicion on from the other uh, smaller member states, and deservedly so. And you could easily contrast that if you think back to the height of the Grexit, so the Greece exit, potential exit from the Eurozone negotiations in 2015. At the end of the day, you had the European Council in the room, Merkel, Hollande, Tsipras, and Tusk. Those were the ones who made the deal, Germany and France and Greece. And on, on Brexit, we never got to that point. Germany was very adamant that this is not something that Theresa May or Boris Johnson uh, should negotiate with Macron and Merkel, but that it should always go through the EU institutions. Can I just follow up on something that Eva said that I thought really interesting about what you said about the UK having made a strategic mistake? Uh, to think about capital. But as I, I recall that Theresa May's government was, was particularly keen on starting the trade negoti negotiations as they were doing the withdrawal agreement. And I'm, I'm wondering whether you may not, if there's not something to be said about a naivety in, in, the, in the role of process or whether the EU uh, could be considered uh, much more strategic and stronger in understanding how to manipulate or use that process. Because I think the UK's government, actually, its strategic position was to try and start it. It wasn't given that option, though. Yes, that's true. The, the, the British government was not given the option until the withdrawal agreement was, was signed and, and ratified. Um, and then it had a different government with a different agenda. But um, prolonging these trade negotiations, or extending them as much as possible and going into as much detail as possible, I think would have put the train on a completely different track, right? Because when you get into the nitty gritty and real distributive, that is uh, conflicts about who gets what, who loses how much, um, then it gets really interesting when you get leeway. So negotiating through issues and not thinking about capitals and their position against each other, because there was no against on the general questions. There was so much agreement amongst the capitals and also industry and society behind them. Yes, Theresa May saw that uh, and that option was not given to get the withdrawal agreement fixed first. And um, then it went again a different way. So, so Germany does stand to be significantly and adversely affected by um, Brexit. I just wondered what the costs to, to Germany um, would be. And, and if you could say something about the famous German um, car industry that was going to bang on uh, Chancellor Merkel's door and insist that she give the UK um, a good deal. Why, why didn't that happen? 
So it's true that uh, Germany will be amongst the EU member states most affected uh, from, from Brexit. Um, if you look at the, the, the many analysis on the effects of Brexit, of a potential no-deal Brexit, and you, you look to the list of EU member states, Ireland is usually number one. That's clear, the most affected member state. And then number two or three is normally uh, Germany and the Netherlands. Um, and that is due to the, the close um, economic linkages, uh, a lot of production uh, and supply chains between Germany um, and the UK. And here it's, it's clear that Germany will be affected, though on a much lower scale than, than the UK or, or Ireland. And therefore, the position of German industries has always been um, that they are in favor, of course, of an orderly Brexit. German industry would have been very strongly in favor um, of a customs union, uh, preferred that uh, to what is now uh, on, on, the, on the table. But German industries, as we discussed earlier, always said, for us, the single market as a whole is much, much more important uh, than the deal with the United Kingdom. And we are already, to a significant exchange, changing our supply lines uh, with, uh, with the UK. And therefore, the, the famous German car makers never, never rode to the rescue, but rather supported both the German government and the commission uh, in their position uh, and interestingly in conversations uh, with German industries like the BDI, the German Federation of Industry, what is the first point they bring up about the Brexit negotiations? It's level playing field. It's their fear actually that the UK as an economic competitor could get an access to the single market without the corresponding, without the accommodations requirements, uh, therefore could use that to outcompete German companies and therefore it's German industries, including the industries, which very strongly says we need a level playing field, we need a strong governance mechanism to ensure uh, these commitments. Um, and as I said earlier, we also need clarification on the border of Ireland to not have an open flank uh, in, the, in the single market. And therefore, uh, rather than being uh, the UK's best friends, uh, I think German industries have their own self-interest at heart. And that self-interest is if there's a trade deal, that would be good but only with level playing field and strict enforcement mechanisms. And if there's not to be a trade deal, uh, then all insurances should be done to protect the single market as, as the most important resources for the global standing of the German economy. The issue about the car industry is also something where if you spoke to Germans, they would say, what? We never heard any complaint about the car industry. If you even think back at uh, the referendum campaign, it was German car manufacturers that openly said, don't vote for Brexit in the UK, warning that this was would be a lose-lose situation. At the beginning of this year, the automobile industry, the Association for the Automotive Industry in Germany, got a new president, um, Hildegard Müller. In her opening address, she didn't mention Brexit. And uh, you might also have taken note that the German car industry had some other problems with um, whatever, cheating with the exhaust, um, there's a new Green Deal coming up and all that. And they talk a lot about that. And these problems are let alone Corona. So there are other issues on top of the agenda, even for the German automotive industry. And I think German industry has also been warned and aware that a hard Brexit may happen. So uh, there is a sense of, of preparedness, uh, I think, um, and again, agreement, as, as Nikolai said, um, that um, damage to the single market is much more harmful. 
is much more harmful. But uh, I've never heard any common effector saying um, that uh, we don't want Brexit and we should accept the UK's uh, demands because uh, we will lose jobs. It was rather, we will lose jobs, yes, but the British should make up their mind to avoid a hard Brexit uh, so that, we, that, that the damage won't be too bad. One of the emerging kind of critiques of um, of the EU from a UK perspective is that the EU's position has been too bureaucratic. It's about to arrive at a position that is not in the interests of um, in the mutual interests of the EU and the UK. And I just wondered what you thought about that. I think it's always an, an easy accusation to fly against the EU that it's too inflexible, that it's too legalistic, um, and that it's too too bureaucratic. But um, from from the point of G- Germany, this is essentially an advantage of the EU. It creates the single market. It, it creates credibility, long-term planning perspective, and the EU as a community of law functions because these laws and regulations are being enforced. And therefore, uh, to strike a deal with the United Kingdom, with a member that wants to leave the EU uh, or has already left the EU, which wants to carve out a special status, uh, would be to the detriment um, of of German and European interests. And therefore, I think the support in Germany for the approach um, of keeping the uh, the single market indivisible um, and trying to find an agreement uh, that is compatible uh, with the single market as a whole is for 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 Germany uh, one of the core interests in these in these negotiations and uh, therefore I think I don't think this is something that would gain any traction as far as I could see. Uh, in the debate in Germany. The the only interesting story you can tell to, to that is that the Alternative für Deutschland, sometimes if there are parliamentary debates on uh, on the next European Council where Brexit is on the agenda, accuses the German government of being too inflexible and then says it should offer uh, the United Kingdom an EEA-style deal with full access to the single market, including free movement. And, and there you see that even the Eurosceptics in Germany, even the Eurosceptics in Germany, when they accuse the government of being too inflexible, uh, want a kind of relationship uh, with between the UK and the European Union that the UK ins- essentially uh, doesn't want. And therefore, I don't see this, this argument gaining any traction here. I think there's also a substantive bit to it. And that is that oh, Theresa May, in, in one of her speeches, said it very nicely. She said, we know what we want and we have understood your principles. The single market is a matter of principle and is perceived as a matter of survival for the EU. And that is not bureaucratic. That is substantive. So it can't be negotiated because it's firmly believed that this is about the survival of the EU. We can't give in on that. Yeah, some, some, would, some would argue existential. One of the questions I was sort of curious about is that in the immediate aftermath of the referendum, there was a kind of reflection on, the, on where the EU ought to go in the long term. And um, you know, a, a sort of touching of foundational principles, if you like. And I, want, I wondered if, if you thought that had gone anywhere. So I'm thinking of the Bratislava process and the, the leaders' process. Um, was that performative, or how would you describe it? Unfortunately, not. I would say um, part of the effects of the Brexit chaos, if I can say so, over the last uh, three years, at least between 2017 and the the, the elections in, in December 2019, has been that Brexit has been perceived as such a chaos and such a negative process uh, that it 
washed away all discussion about what did the EU do wrong. Um, and I think that's that's partly uh, problematic for the EU. Um, I think in the German discourse, most of the blame for Brexit um, and all the effects uh, that, that come through it are put on the Brits. Um, and I would certainly agree that British politics has done itself no favor, uh, few favors in the last uh, two years, uh, but it has also led to a situation where Brexit is seen as so um, individually for the UK that it has stopped some of the reflection on what should the EU learn from the referendum result and where should the EU um, evolve. And German politics in particular, if we talk outside of Brexit, um, has become quite resistant uh, to further EU reform, at least until the beginning of this year. Uh, the COVID-19 situation changed some of that, where some German red lines, for instance, on, on financing uh, debts in the European Union have been questioned. Um, but overall, the German government had a very strong approach after Brexit of taking the main lessons. Now we have to keep the 27 together. And we do that uh, by not opening the Pandora's box on EU reform at all. And this led to a German government being very resistant towards any proposals from Macron uh, to talk about how, where should the EU further develop? What can we do to make the EU more democratic? What, what should we do? Uh, should there be treaty change? All of this was largely resisted by, by Germany. And therefore, uh, this is one area where I would be quite critical of the German political discourse um, on the further development of the EU, where Brexit is now seen as such an individual problem of the UK uh, that the German political scene is not willing or hasn't been very strongly willing to discuss uh, what could be trends in the UK that are also shared in other EU member states where the EU would need to react and reform. And you could see that concretely in the reactions to Brexit. Like in the in 2016, early 17, you had joint press conferences by Macron and Merkel after European Councils, then stressing that it's all about the future of the EU 27. But as soon as that as Macron took up that debate and said, Here's my proposals, Germany didn't respond, started blocking, and as Nikolai said, actually shifted the agenda away from this very strong emphasis of saying Brexit means we need to sort out what our future should be and getting that really off the table uh, in reaction to, to the strong proposals by Macron. And that also put an end to the whole process. Uh, Juncker as commission president started or tried to initiate saying, okay, dear capitals, you need to start debate on what you want. And Germany, for a whole range of reasons, had no big interest in that. You see that very clearly in, in the run-up to the German elections 2017, where EU topics were really not center stage. And uh, that led to a lot of frustration on the French side. And I think there was a, a small window of opportunity, but Germany surely closed it. How ready is Germany for the end of the UK transition and the possibility of a no deal? I think the, the overall assessment is that the state of the, the necessary preparations are not that different between a deal and a no deal scenario. And this made it a little bit easier for the German government to, uh, to conduct the preparations um, as it didn't have to do the difficult political messaging that the UK government uh, needed to do. And therefore, what I'm hearing from the, the German government is basically that um, administrative processes are largely ready. 
large companies also say they're mostly ready, though the COVID-19 situation makes that readiness much more difficult. And the big question mark is over smaller and medium-sized uh, companies, um, how far they could take their preparations uh, precisely because they have to battle with so many difficult issues at the uh, at the current time with the, the second corona lockdown light, as we call it now, uh, now in Germany, which makes it harder to do uh, the, the necessary uh, preparations um, for, for a country which still has strong connections economically to the UK. But part of that preparedness, uh, you might say, is that you could already see that trade volumes between the UK and Germany have been going down since 2016. Uh, and so we already see that, um, in particularly uh, some smaller companies who could no longer afford it or afford the Brexit uh, preparedness um, exercise have moved uh, some of the operations out of the UK. Thank you. How do you think that the results of the US elections will affect the future transatlantic relations? Well, there has been this uh, talk that uh, maybe Johnson withholds the negotiations uh, with the EU because it all depends on who will be the next president in, in the US. Of course, there is uh, Germans are super happy that... Uh, by and large, that Trump uh, has been elected out of office and all that. Um, and it does play a role, but uh, the actual negotiations and the actual relationship between the UK and uh, the EU are far more important. It is not the decisive game changer. And uh, also for, for Germany now in particular, of course, um, having somebody in the White House who's uh, interested in uh, or who, who believes in speaking to each other in cooperative games, and that is conductive and is helpful, but on some hard issues like defense spending and that we won't see crucial changes. I would fully agree that it's not a decisive game changer for the negotiations, but it has changed some calculation for uh, the no-deal scenario in terms of what would it happen mean for foreign and security policy. There was some fear that if we go into a no-deal scenario, uh, we would lose one accomplishment of the last four years from a German perspective, which was to keep the UK, despite Brexit, in the European realm of security and foreign policy on Iran, uh, on Jerusalem, on the Paris Climate Agreement. So lots of areas where uh, the US moved away from the Europeans. And the UK decided uh, by itself to keep cooperating with Berlin and Paris rather than with, with Washington. And there was one real fear that in a second Trump term, um, a hard no deal Brexit could be used by the US administration, for instance, to draw the UK out of the uh, E3 on Iran and, and all these other issues. And now with Biden at the White House, it will be much more easy for Germany, but also for, for France and maybe even uh, for the UK uh, to re-establish some sort of consensus on the in the West on foreign and security policy matters, uh, rather than using this as another fault line between the Europeans and the UK. I've been really interested in hearing what you've been saying about the perception of British pragmatism and how that is still being uh, expected to, to, to play out somehow as we, we close in on, on the end of the transition period and even uh, in the way uh, Germany may view the UK's willingness to come back to the negotiation table after. Uh, so this leads me, has there been a, a, um, a change in perception in the German government of the UK, a change of perception around the UK during these negotiations? The low point for me certainly was the internal market bill. 
Um, I think it cannot be stressed enough how damaging that was to the perception um, of the UK. Um, as I said, Germany perceives uh, international relations very much through the prism of law. You have a lot of lawyers in German ministry. And the idea that you could willingly sign a treaty um, and then eight months later go on and break it, not only sort of try to fudge it and break it a little bit, but openly saying in parliament, we are breaking our commitments. That is really seen as, as an outrage. Um, and that to me has really damaged the German-British relationship far beyond anything beforehand on, on Brexit, because everybody in Berlin expected the UK to negotiate hard in these uh, in these talks. Um, these are hard uh, talks about hard interests, and there's uh, no question about an acceptance of playing hardball. But to really go on and willingly violate your legal commitments, that is seen as as to being on another level. And I think this really has damaged uh, the, the perception of the UK in, in the German government. In addition to all these questions of UK politics just becoming uh, a little bit more chaotic, a little bit less reliable, um, a little bit more question mark on where the UK wants to go. On, on the long run. Um, and so I think this really, if, if you can say so, foreign policy has been the, the high mark where Germany has been reassured that the UK continue to cooperate and the internal market has really been the low point, a signal that um, if push comes to shove, the UK would be willing to violate its legal commitments. That was really seen as a big damage to the credibility of the UK's government commitments that it would now also give for, for the German government and public. And also the withdrawal agreement was not just seen as a stepping stone. It is really been perceived as we resolved serious issues. And it was being stated over and again by the German government, we got an important step forward and we have resolved key issues. And this is crucial. And uh, so the withdrawal agreement and then this two-step approach, we mentioned it before that um, uh, it, uh, it was a strategic move by the EU to divide the negotiations on that, but it was taken as face value and as a real uh, step forward. Um, and it's been taken very seriously, the, the agreement and the political declarations. And I, I just wonder um, where the where relations, you know, bilateral relations between Germany and the UK go from here, because um, um, irrespective of whether there's a deal or not, you know, very warm words have been said between represent, you know, diplomatic representatives of the two countries and a commitment to a continuing bilateral relationship. I wonder, I wonder what you make of that and what, what, can it, what can it mean? I'm afraid the deal still matters quite a lot um, on where the bilateral relations go afterwards. Um, there's been, over the last two years in particular, there's been quite a few um, approaches by the UK government to intensify bilateral relations between Germany and, and the UK. And Germany has always held up from that. Um, there was never the right time in these negotiations uh, to say this is a moment where we intensify our bilateral uh, relationship precisely because Berlin didn't want to be seen as sort of given the hand uh, to, uh, to London. And if there is a deal, I think to some extent this toxic poisoning uh, negotiations have been taken um, out of the room and I would expect there to be an intensification of bilater bilateral contacts precisely because we are no longer having these regular meetings in the EU arena between the, the, the governments. 
Um, but if there's no deal scenario, this will be much harder uh, to, to achieve. Um, my second point would be uh, that the UK is now firmly seen as a third country in Germany within the European context. And the primary, primary framework for German economic policy is the European Union. Um, and therefore, if you think, for instance, the, the yearly bilateral Königswinter meetings between Germany and the UK, there's a discrepancy between very many British colleagues saying we have so many joint interests, let's do more together. And the Germans uh, saying yes on some areas, but our primary framework is the European Union. And this is where we do our economic policy. And therefore, on many areas, uh, the UK, from a German perspective, will just not be at the table where the decisions are being made that count for Germany. And therefore, invariably, on economic issues, the UK will slip down in priorities. It's a little bit different again in foreign and security policy. There are other frameworks like NATO, the G7, the United Nations are still important. And here it's very important for Germany to, to keep the UK at the table and engage with the Europeans. And there are some ideas floating around how to strengthen the E3, more bilateral uh, coordination and foreign and security policy. But I would say on broader economic policy, it's still very much the perception that the UK is now a third country um, and not engaged in the primary framework for Germany. I think one thing will persist, and that is uh, the question of what does London want? What does London want? What do they want in economic terms uh, within the framework of what Germany considers uh, rational and possible? So there's waiting for a clear position that one can react to and act with will persist. And uh, that needs to uh, be resolved somehow. It will, well, we will be somewhere. It will resolve itself, maybe, but uh, then not really um, guided, um, which is uh, probably the worst option. Ava Nikolai, fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to us. Thanks to our guests. Please join us for the next episode of Negotiating Brexit Views from the Member States.